You're listening to Return Again, where we look at Aliyah through the lens of Olim who have lived in Israel long enough to have perspective. I'm Goel Jasper, and today's guest is Arya Bramowitz. Ari grew up in Houston, Texas, to a proud Jewish family that believed in the importance of supporting Israel. But for Ari, born Aliyah Yehuda Abramowitz, doing so from afar was never going to be enough. That said, his road to living life here was not totally smooth, and I had the privilege of joining him on a goat farm recently, where he and his family live, to take in the breathtaking views and hear his Aliyah story. And so, here's Ali Abramowitz, returning again. Ali Abramowitz, thank you for allowing me to come to your, I don't know, estate? What is this? Uh, it is a spiritual destination center. It's a I've been struggling with what it is for a long time. <laughs> well, we it's call awesome. it, We call it the mountain. Okay. You know, our mountain, not that it belongs to us. It all belongs to Hashem. But, uh, but yeah, it's a really, really special place. And unless I'm mistaken, I've been trying to get you out here for a while. True. And so if it took this to get you out here, then it was worth it. And as we talked about before, I'm not really out here. Right. I'm speaking with you here, but I need to come back and, to, and really understand this. Absorb yeah. it. With your kids, it. with your family, yeah, yeah, yeah. see yeah. the vineyards, see the pool, see the olive groves, see the flocks, see, see everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking forward to that. But for now, we're talking about you. Okay, my so, favorite subject. So, <laughs> when was the first time you ever heard of the concept of living in Israel? Go, uh, go all the way back. Living in Israel. I mean, that's something. I mean, so my name is Ari Yehuda Abramowitz. It means Lion of Judah, Son of Abraham. So that Lech Lecha go towards your land, go into yourself to the land of Israel, to the land of... That's already spiritually hardwired into our soul. You know, my soul, your soul, the soul of the children of Abraham, children of Isaac and Jacob. So it's just part of my consciousness from when my consciousness started developing. Now, I remember when I was a little kid, I was like... Where were you? Five or six, Houston, Texas. I'm a fourth generation Texan through my mother. Got it. And so, uh, but I was raised in Houston, Texas. So I remember being on the phone. We were all gathered around the phone to talk to our cousins that were living in Nest Siona in Israel. Right. And every minute was like $10 and it was the biggest deal. And I couldn't even imagine what that was like living in Israel. It was like Camelot in my mind. It was like Jerusalem. That's a real place. It yeah. was just like it was from a storybook uh, when I was a little kid. So um, I feel like that makes me sound super old. Well, truth is, I turned 44. Uh, actually, my English birthday is today. Oh, happy yeah. fake birthday. Yeah, thank you. And well, you know, Yishai Fleischer says it's not a fake birthday. It's the b- birthday of your body. And then your Hebrew birthday is the birthday of your soul. Okay. Because, like, we go by both calendars. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And so yeah. there's something to each of them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Hebrew birthday is also the birthday of your body. Um. Okay, you can take it up with Yishai. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I I certainly will. Um, It's funny what you say about the whole uh, what's in a name kind of thing, because um, my Hebrew name, as you know, is Goel, which was not the name I grew up using when I was was living in the States. Probably Gary. No, it was Glenn. Glenn, Glenn. okay. My wife still calls me Glenn. Okay. She says, I married Glenn, that's what I'm calling you. Okay. But she's the only one that gets that privilege. And some people in my professional life, um, because... You're I, much more of a Goel than a Glenn. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But the thing about, about the name is, when, when my, uh, my parents had our going away party in the States, 
when we made Aliyah, I was like, you did this to me. You named me Goel. So it's a very similar thing to what you were yeah. saying. About it. I was There's like, a lot to a name. The truth is I've been relatively obsessed. You'd think that this war that my mind is in like M16s and scopes and it's maybe a little bit there, but I've been really obsessed about names lately. Huh. Like we're here in Judea and Samaria. It's not the West Bank. Right. Okay. And the, the term that everybody seems to be using, even people on our team and our of Palestinian Oh, it's been okay. driving me nuts. It's really, really driving me nuts. And every time I bring it up to people, those that I respect, they're like, oh, come on. You, you gotta, it's like you got to wave the white flag on something and move on. But I'm like, don't you? If there's Palestinians, then there's a Palestine. Right. And the very idea of Palestine was created to negate our very existence. So you're raising the white flag on the most fundamental part of what this war is about, which is a religious spiritual war. And I'm getting too sidetracked. We could talk about that another time. But yes, names are really important. That's why you're supposed to call someone by their real name, according to Jewish law, right? Because your parents are given us a piece of 160th of prophecy when they give you your name. And your name summarizes and culminates something about your essence. And you should take names and words and language very seriously. Now, I remember. I remember when I was a kid. It's very, very funny what you say about about that. You know, the huddling around the fireplace, otherwise known as the phone, to <laughs> speak with your uh, relatives. Anything about Israel was like so. It was like, it was like magical, right? Like that. That's how you feel. Like if My someone father, brought back like a like a Coca Cola T shirt in Hebrew. It's in like, Hebrew. Wow. Yeah. No, it wasn't only the T shirt. It was the very concept that on the can was written the words is written the words Coca-Cola in that faraway place in the Middle East. Yeah. The yeah. same words that as a little Jewish boy, I'm going to learn the words of the Torah and these black and white ancient antiquated letters that have been relegated to the history books are now brought back to life on a can of Coca-Cola. My father passed away about seven months ago. And one of the stories that he would always tell was that he was in line in an amusement park somewhere and uh, his father said, shh, shh, listen, listen, silenced him. He said, do you hear that behind us? The talking he said, what is that? He said, that's Hebrew. Wow, right. It's like music. Right. It's like music. And my yeah, father yeah. always teared up whenever he said that. Huh. Because to him, like at such an early age, Hebrew was like the music, like a divine sort of music. So, so okay, so fine. So you're five, six years old, et cetera, et cetera. Like, but, but it was never like living in Israel that was in your mind. It was just like Israel's a magical place, right? Like, so, so, t- Help us understand, like, when things might have shifted for you. Okay. Um, well, let's see. I remember I was in the sixth grade, mm-hmm. and there was a rabbi that was talking about his friend. Uh, Daniel Haas was his name. His friend was Daniel Haas. This rabbi's name was Rabbi Sher. And they were in the army together, and Daniel Haas was killed in the army. And he had every year on his uh, side, the, the rabbi does, a, like, a little presentation about him. And at that moment, I was like, I'm going to go and serve in the Israeli army. So is that what convinced me to serve in the army? No, because there's an entire class of kids that were not moved to do that from the story of someone that died in the Israeli army. Meaning we have these deep things sort of dormant within us, feelings and sentiments and whatever that are just hardwired in our soul. And then something happens to activate it. But it doesn't mean that that thing created the idea. You know, so for me, any time that Israel presented itself, that the idea of the army, that living here presented itself, immediately I grasped on it and said, well, that's obviously what I'm going to do. I'm going to live in Israel. When I came to Israel for the year after high school, you know, it was supposed to be just a few months in yeshiva, like the year, the gap year. Sure. And I was like, I'm going to stay here. 
I'm going to stay here for the rest of my life. You know, my parents were like, no, come back to America, and then you can make Aliyah. Okay, uh, you know, make Aliyah. For those of you that are listening, we have a walkie-talkie. What do you call this in official military parlance? I have no communica- idea. Army communication device. Anyways. There's a comedian, Brian Regan. Yeah. He has a whole thing about walkie-talkies. Like how everything in military use has such serious names, and then you have a thing called walkie-talkie. It's yeah, like, that's why I keep wanting silly, to call you know? it something else. <laughs> yeah, like something more, more serious. Know? Yeah, yeah. Right? But um, where was I? <laughs> you were talking about after high school, you were here, and you said to your parents... Oh, yeah, so um, I said, I want to stay here for the rest of my life. They said, no, come back to America. There was a lot of negotiations. They thought it was a phase. They said, come back to America for a semester. You know, and then you yeah. could, uh, you know, go back if you want. And so I went for one semester, and the day that semester was over, I was on a flight back to Israel. Okay, great. So you've yeah. given us the framework now. Now I have a couple of questions. Okay. Sixth grade, you're like, I have to serve in the Army because of, because of this, this story of your, te- your, your rabbi, the rabbi of the school or a rabbi yeah. who taught in the school? No, just a rabbi who taught in the school. Okay. He was in the Army. But yeah, that's um, what activated of his it. Friend. But obviously... Okay. I know that that wasn't the thing that did it. But, so yeah. between sixth grade and the end of high school, what was happening with you in Israel? Did you ever visit Israel? Like, was it I, on yeah, I went your radar to, screen? The first time I, I went to Israel, I was uh, 15. Okay. And I was going to a camp called IBA, Israel Basketball Academy. Hmm. Yeah. and uh, That's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was fun. But uh, I never enjoyed visiting Israel. I always felt uncomfortable with it. So there was that, and then maybe once or twice I, I, I came to Israel in different contexts, when birthright or whatever, and I never liked it. I never liked visiting mm. Israel. The very existential anxiety or discomfort of visiting Israel, the very fact that I was visiting it, made me dislike the very act of it. What I didn't did you, want did... to be visiting it. I wanted just to be there and live there and have my roots there. And the idea of being there in the uh, construct of a tourist was just uncomfortable for me the whole time that I was there. Okay, so this is, this is very interesting. So a lot of people, they say they... These are great questions, but I've never thought of this in this capacity. Yeah, go ahead. There are many people that come to Israel, and there are certain things about it that they find uncomfortable, whether it's the different language or uh, years ago the quality of the toilet paper or, you know, the, or what ketchup used to be like and... and and just the inconvenience, small parking spots, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's not what you're talking about, is it? No. You're talking there about the temporary nature. The temporary nature of being here in the context of a tourist made me uncomfortable. I didn't like that. But in everything about Israel, I've always been in love with every single facet and element of Israel. Even the things I didn't necessarily like, I still loved those things. Because that's what Israel was. Yeah. You know, like, the, the, you know, there's certain, you know, the ambiguity and disharmony and chaos of a line that you don't know where to stand on a line. And if you're just standing on a line. <laughs> or if it is a line. Yeah. And sort of the dysfunction <laughs> of society, you know, like that. I love that. I love that because, first of all, that's a real family. Mm-hmm. A real family is right. dysfunctional, you know. And so it's like the sort of cold, cerebral uh, you know, everybody's polite to each other, let's say, in America, but there's not really 
the love there. I always feel like the societal fabric, especially now in America, is so frayed that it's just waiting to erupt. Mm. So this sort of sensitivity of microaggressions is not a real love for each other. It's actually the exact opposite. You know, even I remember when I was in the army and there was like Ethiopian guys in my unit. And we were so racist with each other because Mm -hmm. it was so obvious that it was a joke, that we loved each other, that I would marry their sisters, they would marry mine, we would die for each other, so we can make fun of everything because we're brothers. Yeah. You know, and it's like the microaggression stuff shows like there's a lot, there's no real love here. That's what I see over there at wow. least. But, uh, but yeah, I've always, there's just everything about Israel I've always, always loved. And I think that's how I always knew it was a true love. Because, you know, I remember a woman came and she was like, I remember when I was a girl, it was like this and it's not like this now. And it makes me like love it less. I'm like, well, then it's not a real love if it's just a projection of yourself. If it's like your child, whatever they become, you love them as they are. Right. And so like Israel is its own, the state of it, the, the, the nation, the land of Israel, it's its own living entity, you know. And so you just love it for what it is and where it's at. And uh, that's why I feel like it just has to be... A, a deeply hardwired thing into my soul. Yeah. It doesn't, it's, there's never been a lot of like real rational explanation for the extreme, extreme emotions I have for, for being here. Right. You know, like also I never understood people like it's inconvenient and it's, uh, you know, it's more difficult. I would rather live in a leaky caravan and clean toilets in the central bus station in Israel than live in a mansion in New York. It's not like, well, I believe I should, and that's the responsibility I have is that I should believe that and that. No, it's like I would actually rather do that. Wow. I would just rather do that. It's just, yeah, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to to that summer in the basketball camp for a second. Okay. Not only because I love basketball, but because I'm just curious about the makeup of of the campers. Was it mostly Americans? Was it a mixture? Was it mostly Israelis? What? What I was think that there were a few like? Israelis there. It was mostly. It was American. run by a guy named Bobby Kaplan, whose son Mordechai Kaplan is now a Rebbe in Leva Torah, incredible right. guy. And, but uh, but yeah, they, I remember they brought out a, a basketball player named Earl the Pearl Monroe. What do you mean a basketball player named? Well, Earl he the was pre my time. He's a legend. He's a legend. Hall yeah. of Famer. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, my interest in basketball started with the Houston Rockets in 1993. Oh, wow. But, uh, yeah, so I, okay. Earl of Pearl was before my time. Very. But anyways, this is not, like, relevant to the story, but it was mostly New York Jews because most Jews of the exile in America are New York Jews. So it was mostly New York Jews. So it was really Jews. just a transplanted basketball camp to Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay, so you, uh, you say to your parents, okay, I'll come do a semester in the States. Where where'd you go to college in the States? So I was going to go to Boston University. Okay. Uh, I got like into there. It doesn't matter. But last second, I decided why you. I would go to Yeshiva mm-hmm. University because I realized that they have the a tendency to grant leaves of absence without much trouble. Right. And if it's in Israel, then they'll grant you years leave of absence <laughs> that's right which is actually when it ended up happening yeah so I, I went to yeshiva university and it was one of the most miserable semesters of my life of like periods of my life i just thought i was just so afraid i was gonna die in new york some stupid meaningless death and, well, uh, well on on several levels first of all you're as they call an out of town like you're a houston guy yeah so, so the there whole was new that. york city thing but i guess mostly you're talking about not being here well, no, there was also the social element. Oh, okay. New York Jews have a certain... I mean, listen, it was my experience with many of those that I met 
that they have a certain clickishness to them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I didn't, there were places I had nowhere to go for Shabbat, and I was at YU, and I didn't have a lot of friends because I went in there not knowing a lot of, it was a diff- difficult, socially difficult on a lot of fronts, but also wow. just being there. It was like, you know, Spanish Harlem in New York. Yeah. It was yeah. just, you know, so there wasn't a lot of, you know, I wasn't torn about whether, I was counting the days before I could leave. And, so. and what's, what's up with your parents at this point? Like, they're like, go for it? Or are they like, wait, are you sure you want to live in Israel? Like, what was their attitude? Uh, yeah, I mean, they were super, super Zionist. Like, that's what yeah. the, our religion was. Right. Growing up, my religion was Zionism. And uh, we were like, reform, not reform, we were never reform. We were like conservadox. Mm. You know, we would drive to an Orthodox shul right. and whatever. But as I started getting older in the Hebrew Academy, when I was like, I think 14, my sister started walking. She was 16. I walked to shul with her. It was three miles. And I became wow. more observant and religious. And my journey with Hashem began. And that was a big part of it. But, uh, but yeah, no, the, what was the question? <laughs> that happens to me. Um, just the, the whole thing about your parents and their Right, so, oh, their, so, their so it, was, it was part of us, but it. I think there was a little bit of like an armchair yeah. Zionism thing. Like they were very, very Zionist, but it was like, okay, so support Israel from here. But when I came back and I went to, you know, Yeshiva University, I was like, that's the deal. And they're like, okay, you can go back now. And, you know, it was not a phase and you wanted to go back. And so they supported me and super, super proud of me. Hmm. I think the whole like uh, lone soldier thing, has become much more of a bigger phenomenon since I was there. So th- you yeah. came to Israel as a lone soldier? Yes. Time right. out on college. I'm so, going yeah, so, so the, the short of the story was I finished Yeshiva University. I came to Israel. I wanted to enroll in the army, but my Hebrew wasn't exactly good enough. And I was going to enroll in Machal through a Yeshiva, a Hezder program. Right. So I enrolled in Or at Sion. And uh, for whatever reason, I was accidentally uh, in, put into Or Me'ofir, which is Or at Sion's Ethiopian program. So it was me and like 50 Ethiopian Jews for like five months. Right. And uh, I could have switched out, you know, but uh, I felt like Hashem put me there for a reason. And also the Ethiopian Jews are just so sweet and loving and kind and, and welcoming. And so... Um, Did you have much interaction with Rav Drukman when you A were little there? bit. I met him. I met mm. with him maybe four or five times. Okay. He was like a Rav that you had to like make an appointment yeah, yeah, sure. and meet with. Um, but yeah, it was always like a very positive experience that I had with him. I just, it was from a distance. I yeah. was just a kid in the program. And then, I, and then I served in the army and I got into the army and that was great. And then whatever, it's, it's a whole crazy story. If you want, I can tell you the story. Let's or, keep going. So you're in the army. Okay, what do you, what'd you do in the army? Uh, so I was in uh, the Golani Infantry Unit. Okay. Um, yeah, my, uh, it was my first day. The famous story goes, I walked in and I was... Late, I was with this Meshaki Tash, like a, com- a commander that helps new immigrants. And I just didn't want to be late. And I walked in and all the commanders, the officers are all looking at the ground. And I wanted to say, I'm sorry that I'm late. But I said, I'm sorry that I'm ugly. <laughs> right? And they all laughed like, I'm sorry that I'm ugly. Anyways, there's a lot of stories that I could tell. Yeah. It's already become part of a routine. Uh-huh. You know, like when you make Aliyah, you've got a routine. That's right. When people ask for your story. So I'll sort of... Spare you the routine. Okay. But, uh, but I, was in, I was in Golani, and I was in, um, you know, I was in uh, southern Lebanon. I was in Hebron. We were on the, the, near the Gaza. We were in Gaza. That was more Givati and, and Nachal. Yeah. Golani was more in the north. Right. And it was just a very, very, very positive experience. It was like, 
I was just so proud, you know, like the Israeli army uniform, just putting that on and every right. day wearing that and having tzahal. To me, there was like, it was like the, the robe of the high priest yeah. on some level. There's like kedusha to it. Right. I'm serving in the, like the first Jewish army since the times of King David. You know, so I feel like I had an appreciation for it that some of the other soldiers just didn't have. Right. You know, the, the story is still like, like, it's like you're born in the desert after the exodus and the, your food is coming as manna falling out of the sky. If you're born into that, that's not a miracle, that's nature. Right, that's right. Right, and so, but if you're born in Egypt and you see that, so I feel like I was born in Egypt and I came on the exodus to the Holy Land. I got to see the, the miracles of what just the Israeli army uniform is and I saw the miracle of also Tzahal. You know, I think that October 7th showed us a little bit what a miracle Tzahal really is. Because I was like, I remember looking, I'm like, wait, that's the officer. He's 19. It's like a bunch of 20-year-old, 19-year-olds. That's right. And like, we're way outnumbered. Egypt alone has a larger air force than, like, the very, every day that we exist is a blatant miracle. Right. And I feel like October 7th was like Hashem saying, okay, I'm going to just let nature run its course for a few hours to show wow. you what that looks like. Wow. You know, and... Um, and so we were humbled. We've been, yeah. I think we were really humbled on October 7th. But the good news is that mashpil ge'im umagbiya shafalim. Hashem like lowers the arrogant, but then raises up the humble. And I think mm-hmm. we've been humbled, and I think that the world's going to say Hashem raises us up. But we're not talking about October 7th, and we're not talking about that. We're telling the story, right? You made no, that very... No, we're fine. We're yeah, fine. anyways, so, uh, so yeah, so I served in the army. For how and long? And then uh, it was the initial thing, Machal was... Nine months. Okay. So it's like nine months. That's like, what does that really contribute to anything? Though? Like the real contribution is the 24 years of reserve duty that you're right. going to be doing. Right. So anyway, so I... I, I, I refer to, to Tzahal's concept as it's, it's the military version of drip irrigation. You know, like we need, we need all these people to be able to serve, like at a time like now, unfortunately. Um, but we can't afford to have such a large army on an ongoing basis. Right. So it's drip irrigation. It's, That's what they told us. They said that the standing army of Israel is only meant to last 24 hours until the reserves are called right. up. Exactly. So It's genius. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's genius. genius. It's also necessity. True. Um, True. But, uh, but yeah, so, so I finished the army. I wanted to stay in Israel. And, uh, but it was, so I actually enrolled in Bar Ilan University. Okay. And uh, I went there and I was studying logis- logistica. And I didn't even know what logistica was. I like, still don't I, know what it is. I what still, is yeah, it? So logistics. I don't know what logistics is. <laughs> I mean, I and know what it is in a business science. context. Yeah, but... computer science, which is just totally okay. ridiculous for me to study. It's right. the opposite of what my brain is wired for. <laughs> but anyways, I, I did a year of that. And then my mother was like, please, I can't sleep. And I just come back. You finish up your degree in America. It's going to take, you know, uh, just a year and a half, two years. Israel, it's going to be three years. And they made a very compelling argument. So I was like, you know what? I'll just go back and finish my degree in America. My mother will be able to sleep at night. And the way the story goes, I went back. And after being there for two weeks, I was stabbed in the back, walking down New York uh, the street in New York City. Yes, quite, quite yeah, literally. Okay. In the back and in the arm. The police said he needed to uh, stab a Jew to get into a gang. And I hope he got in. Otherwise, it was for nothing. Right? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I was stabbed in the back there. Right. And uh, I saw the World Trade Center come down before my eyes. I was on 186th 
and Broadway in the tall top of a building looking all the way downtown, watching the World Trade Center happen. Not right after the stabbing. It was like, two weeks later. Okay. okay. No, I'm saying you make it sound like it's like yeah, you're no, stabbed no, not, and then you look up and there's... No, 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 no. no, no. That would have been a very traumatic 20-minute period. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I was right, stabbed. So. I was in the hospital for a couple of days. Yeah. I was released. And I think by the reason... Looking back, I think the reason I was stabbed is because I had such a fear when I went back to America that I was going to die. Really, that was like... It was almost like a crippling fear because in Israel, I was in the... I was in Lebanon. I was in. There was just like very intense situations. I was yeah. in a, a suicide bombing that threw me backwards. I was never, ever, ever afraid in Israel ever, uh, but I was afraid that I was going to die there. And it's, I, it's almost like an irrational fear, just a, a miserable. It's the opposite of a lot of people's fear, for sure, right? But uh, I just didn't want to have a, a boring, sort of nebby death. And, and so the Balatanya says, you know, that when you're afraid of something, you attract it into your life. When you allow that fear to be, it's mm. like, let's say you take a plank of wood and you put it between that wall and that wall. You can walk across it easily. Take the same plank and put it between two tall buildings. You're going to fall. Right. Why? Right. Because it's the fear that actually makes it happen. Yep. And I think I sort of attracted that into my life on some sort of, you know, spiritual abstract level. Yeah. But, uh, but it was good because, you know, like... People are like, oh, it's dangerous in Israel. I'm like, you got to hear my story. <laughs> okay, so yeah. the building's So I also down. got burned severely on my arm, horribly burned on my arm. I was in the hospital with World Trade Center survivors for like two and a half weeks. Gosh. Um, yeah, it was just a nightmare for me, like, being there. But it was there for a year and a half. Oh, yeah. So and after that, you stayed? I stayed. Wow. Okay. I finished my degree. Yeah. I... Real, I went to summer courses, maxed out as many like as quickly as so, possible. Yeah, maxed out as many credits as I possibly could in yeah. every moment that I was in America, and it was one and a half years. And I got to the day that was over back in the Israel, never looked back since. Wow. Okay, so what year are we talking about here? When you come back to Israel after that? Um, my official Aliyah was July twenty third of two thousand three. Okay. But, uh, but, I mean, it, it was sort of a strange aliyah because I had served in the army before then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt very much, like, rooted here. My tickets were always from Israel to America and back. Right, right. You know, so it was, yeah. that was the official aliyah. So where'd you land and what'd you do? Uh, when I, uh, you know, for my aliyah, like yeah. when I made official aliyah, 2003, yeah. uh, let's see. I After college is behind you, I'm, I'm asking. Right, right. Yeah. So I, uh, I spent a couple months living with uh, my sister on Hildesheimer off of Emek Rafaim. <laughs> Though the way I sort of marketed to my parents my return was saying that I was going to get a, a master's in business, an MBA at Bar Ilan University. Okay. And that was like something that they could like hold on to, right. digest. It was a rational decision. I was sounds doing rational things. Right? It sounds like normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, I did. I got that uh, MBA, even though it was just not, I'm not a business person. You right. know, I'm not a business guy at all. I'm not, that's not where my head is. I don't like have, I think, the proper value or perspective on money. Or I do. And that's the perspective I have is a better perspective. But uh, it's okay. never... Okay. Meaning I don't, I always felt like, I remember when my wife and I were out here on the farm and we, uh, my, my house was the first house actually like on the farm and I was living here for like two and a half years alone on this mountain. My closest neighbor was like two kilometers away. But when we got married, we were praying for children. We we're a little bit older. I'm sort of hopping around the story a little bit. Okay. But I remember saying to her like, you know, we both felt like uh, we're 38, but if uh, like 
if we build a bigger home, then Hashem will fill it with light. If we build a vessel, then Hashem will give us like the, the, the light, the children for it, because it was such a small place we were living in. Right. Wow. And, uh, but at the same time, it wasn't zoned. It wasn't really fully legal. And so if we're building this house, like there's real danger that it could be destroyed. Mm-hmm. We were sued in the Supreme Court by Peace Now and these far-left activists funded by the European Union. Sure. And, um, and so while this is happening, like my dad's like, why don't you wait till after the Supreme Court rules before you decide to go ahead and put all of your money into building a house. Because we had no mortgage. We didn't have like, you know, loans or whatever. It was like, it was going to have to all be from our pockets and we were going to have to scrounge to do that. He said, why don't you wait? And we both felt like in the eyes of Hashem, it would matter less if, if, we, if we waited. Like, right. this is the time to do it. And I said to my wife, I was like, listen, if our home is built and then it's totally destroyed and we lose everything, we could always afford living in a caravan on a hilltop in the nearby settlement. Would you be happy in a caravan? She said, yeah, I would be happy in a caravan. So I said, then we have nothing to fear. Amazing. And that's been a big way that I've dealt with fears ever since. Yeah. You look at the worst case scenario, you're like, let's say the worst case scenario. Could I be happy there? How would I contend with that situation to be able to be happy? Yeah, I could be happy. Then there's nothing to fear. And then you sort of minimize the chances of that thing you're afraid of happening because you've contended with the possibility of it happening in a real way and you've come to peace with it. And so you don't really attract it in. That's but that that's MBA own. coming in. The, the, the MBA. The knowledge that you gained from your MBA. Yeah, definitely not. Worst case scenarios, mapping it out. No, Maybe not that so would have been my, so your MBA. I don't know. It was, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, so you landed in your sister's apartment for a couple of months. Right. Interesting to know that your sister had also moved here. Right. During that, before, she came yeah. uh, on a visit and she yeah. went to... Uh, she, she was working in Random House and whatever, and she edited the Da Vinci Code, and she had a very good like, oh, wow. little thing going on there. And then she met this guy here in Israel, and they just fell in love, and he wasn't leaving. Yeah. Incredible guy, great, beloved, like a brother to me until today. And uh, yeah, so they got married, and she, she stayed. And wow. so now I have one sister that has three children living in Modi'in, and another sister that has one also living in Modi'in. How many? Three all together. Three all together. So you're all yeah. here. We're all here. And your parents? My parents made Aliyah, I oh, think yeah, it I was seven years ago. Seven my father ago. passed yeah. away seven months ago. So your mom's here. Uh, my mother's in, in Yerushalayim. And my father, yeah, he passed away here, but it was also just like the best. A lot of people said like, oh, it's such a tragedy. Your father passed away. I said, uh, devastating, yes. Am I weeping constantly? Yes. But it was not a tragedy. Not a tragedy. He, he, had, he got diabetes at the age of eight. Wow. And they said he was going to live to 30, and he got to see his children and grandchildren live in Israel. And he woke up every day and looked out on his balcony and saw Yerushalayim. And, like, it was, it, was, that's, it was a good story. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so, so just going back to 2003, so you're with your sister for a couple of months, but then, like, where'd you go from there? What'd you do? Then I went to, I started the MBA program. Right. I was living in Yerushalayim, and I traveled three times a week to the MBA program in, in, in Ramad Gan or whatever. Not Ramagan. What's it called? Um, Givat Shmuel. Givat Shmuel. Which it's is right, right next, next to Ramagan. Yeah. yeah, it's fine. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so I was, uh, I, I did that, and while I did that, uh, you know, Jeremy Gimpel, who's like, he was a. Uh, we met uh, when I was, I don't know, twenty. I was in Israel at the time. I was in the army. We met, and we had that sort of thing. It was like a click. Right. Like we really, really liked each other. We were like best friends almost immediately. 
And so when I made Aliyah, we were like always hanging out. And it was like, it was very much a, a mission thing, a tough kid thing. Mm. You know, like we had the same sort of frequency of love for Israel and Am Israel. And so we uh, started this company together making necklaces. It was called the Land of Israel Necklace. We still sell them till, until today. And it has earth in it from different places throughout the land of Israel right. in this little sort of tube. And it's a way to keep the land close to your heart wherever you are in the world. Yeah. And we started doing that, but it was, which is actually a perfect way for our journey to begin because it was about our love for Israel. We love Israel so much that we believed it belonged as a jewelry. You should yeah. glorify yourself with it and adorn yourself with mm-hmm. it. And so we started that. But then, you know, I had met Yishai Fleischer in New York at Yeshiva University. Right. And he's like, why don't you guys come to Arut Sheva? And have a radio show. Yeah. And so that was very much the beginning of our journey that ended up here. Right. You know, was, was Yishai bringing us to Arut Sheva. And then from then on, it was very much the message was the end in and of itself. And the necklace and the other, you know, things were more the corollary hmm. side, side projects. But it was really very much. So we had a radio show and we had a TV show called Tuesday Night Live in Jerusalem. We attended once. Yeah, you did? And we loved it. It was the one where, where Professor Almond was, uh, was Professor a guest. Professor Almond, yeah. And I think Shlomo Katz was the musical guest. Oh, that could have been too. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Rav Shlomo and I go way back. Yeah. And uh, it's just so cool to see what Hashem has done with him. He is leading, leading the Zayit, uh, you know, uh, Shirat David yeah. con- congregation community. Unbelievably. Unbelievably, really, like, I'm just so proud that he's my Rebbe and, like, my, my friend. Anyways, but, um, yeah, Professor Allman, he got really mad at us, that show, I remember, because he had to wait, like, 15, 20 minutes right. to, to come on the show, and he's, like, <laughs> on a strict schedule. He's, like, sort of uh, pedantic yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, in that way, if the word is pedantic. But actually, you know, just to go back to the very first little conversation we had about names, yeah. he provided a solution to... Uh, the issue of using the word Palestinian. Go ahead. He said, and I actually have approached, and I'm not going to say names because they haven't taken his advice, yeah. but he said, just say Palestinian Arab. Palestinian Arab. That's ah. fine because Palestine was right, the British mandate of yeah, Palestine. Yeah, it, it was there were region. Jews yeah, that yeah. were here. Yeah. There were Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Arabs. So at least it like opens it up to a, a greater certainly conversation. Better. Certainly better. It's I don't know why better. people don't do that. Okay, but, uh, well, but let's anyways, do that. that was his, yeah, that's, I don't even use Palestinian I just Arab. say Arabs. I just say Arabs. Right, I say Arabs or jihadists or, okay. you know, like that's whatever. Awesome. But yeah. it, no, it depends. It depends. Right. If they're jihadists, yeah. that's like a little bit of guidance that Yishai gave me. Like to, let's call them w- what, what they, they are. are. Yeah. yeah, but not every Arab is a jihadist, but uh, every jihadist is, actually, no, you can't say every jihadist is an Arab. There's a lot of jihadists that are Iranian, that are not Arabs, right. that are Aryans. That's actually Iran, the word Iran. If yeah. you look it up on Wikipedia, the first thing it says is, comes from the word Aryan. Really? Yeah. Get out of here. Iran, that first sentence on Wikipedia. And I was like, well, that makes a lot of sense. That's so right? interesting. My wife's, my wife's from there, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, her parents. Okay, that's, yeah. that's cool. So there's like a lot of Persian yeah. in your home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. And, and it's very interesting because, boy, they are very clear Oh, to let, yeah. I to heard let anyone this... who knows that they are not Arabs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you, have you heard of this guy, Yusian? No. He's this Iranian dissident Jew. 
Right. And he is, they've taken him off Wikipedia. He's too good. He's too insightful. He understands what's going on too much that they've now blacklisted this guy, but you got to see it. I'll send wow. you some links okay. after yeah. Yusian. Eliyahu Yusian. Yeah. Anyways, okay. go ahead. How'd you meet your wife? So my wife was introduced originally, we were introduced by Hillel Fold, mm-hmm. who was at every single Tuesday Night Live in the front row. That's so funny. Front and center at every single Tuesday Night Live. Yeah. Um, at the time, I just loved him, but I didn't, he, he was not yet like the Hillel Fold right, of, right. of our day, which is really yeah. I just, I'm so happy when people that should be in good places get there. <laughs> That's how I feel about Hillel Fold. He's an yeah. incredible guy. So he introduced us. And um, we went on one date, and that was the end of it. Uh, and for that was the end of it for I think eleven years. Oh, that was the end of it in not a good way. Yeah, well, I'm not <laughs> not not a good way. I thought you meant like that was it. I knew right then. Yeah, I've come. You know, in the, it says in the Gemara, "Reshaim malecharatot." The evil are full of regrets. Yeah. And yeah. I always thought that the reason is because they're evil, so they've done all these things that they regret. But now I've come to realize or believe on my level that when you have regrets. It's the, having the regrets that make you evil. Meaning, if you believe that everything that happened was orchestrated by Hashem for your benefit, then you don't really regret things. There can't be regrets. There can't case. be regrets. Yeah. You're happy that everything happened the way it should. Yeah. There are things that you could have done that you're ashamed about, that you want to move, but you don't like regret them because it was part of the journey that you were supposed to go on. And so, uh, so Hillel introduced us. And the way I sort of see it, was, so I, I just didn't have the eyes to see it. That's the truth. I didn't have the eyes to see it. Sometimes I play the game. I'm like, we're just so exhausted right now. You know, we're like, hey, we have Dvash is three and a half. Our daughter's three and a half. Shiloh's one and a half. She's eight months pregnant. Wow. We're 44 years old. She's going to be 44 soon. It's tiring. I'm like, why didn't we get married 11 years ago? We could have uh-huh. had more kids. And the, but I'm yeah. like, no, that was the journey. And so I sort of liken it to the paratroopers right. that conquered the Temple Mount in 1967, in the Six-Day War, and ran right over the Temple Mount to the Kotel. Yeah. They didn't have the eyes to see it. Right. It wasn't time yet. It's unbelievable. So I yeah. needed to go through a journey of refinement and pain and growth that I went through during those 11 years. She, on her level, I guess, needed to go with, through what she needed to go through. And, um, yeah, and then we were introduced in 2017. Right. Uh, we were like brought back together. I saw her at a meal and she seemed like so, she sort of had like a quiet, regal, huh. refinedness to her. And so that like, I didn't remember that we went out. That's the truth. Wow. But, um, but then, you know, my sister and her friends spoke to each other and said, set them up. I said, great, I would love that. And she took a little bit of convincing to, to give me a go again. But, uh, but then we did and, and the rest is history. That's amazing. She's Israeli or American? She is uh, from, uh, born in New Jersey. Okay. Born in New Jersey. I'm trying to have a distinction there. I don't want to say she's from New Jersey because ultimately we're all from Judea. Yeah. We're all from Eretz Yisrael, yeah. but she was born in New Jersey. There's a certain myopia that's part of the human condition that we see our story as much more magnified and central than it really should be mm. in the scope of history. And so I try to always take a few, you know, generations out when I look at my life, to see it more in a greater context. Well, it's, it's like when people say, so what do you do? You know, the proper response is I, I try to build as close a relationship with God as possible and impact the world in a positive way. 
but that's generally not what people say. Right. <laughs> like, oh, I'm an accountant. Right. They associate their occupation <laughs> that they use yeah. to make money. Yeah. You know, my dad was always like very uh, like an educator. He loved teaching. His mother, when he became diabetic, she started like trying to guide him. And she said, you should really shouldn't be a doctor. Or a you should be a, a financial advisor. Or whatever. But mm. to say that that's what he did, right. when it was just something he had to do to make a living, to put food on the table, but his essence had nothing to do with that. Right. Yeah. So like what we do is really should be our essence. That's like, I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking a lot about mm. death. I think a lot of us have been thinking about death, you know, just how imminent it, it is. It's really imminent in the scope of things, whether we die early or not. In terms but, of world uh, history, yeah. Yeah, but like when, when you're dying and you're like, a lot of your identity just starts peeling away, you know, especially when you're getting older and you get a dementia and this and that and then what ends up being there, it's really your rut zone. Like what you really want is really your essence more than anything else on some level. You, you want to hear something ridiculous? I just saw some, some quote from Shaq, the basketball player, talking about how the older you get, the more simple you want your life to be in terms of loving people who are close to you and et cetera, et cetera. Like, so you're right. Like, even for someone like Shaq, who you think, well, he's not an old yeah. man. Like, as life goes on, you, you, you do get more focused about what the yeah. priorities are. Yeah, right? I feel like also in Israel, you tend to even be more focused and magnified because of how real yeah. things are here. That's right. And, uh, and yeah, so for me, I forgot if it's Maslow's hierarchy, whatever, whatever it is, but there's this idea that, you know, after a certain amount of money, the added value of your utility or pleasure you get from the money just decreases significantly. So when I feel like I have enough money to put food on the table without, uh, you know, pressure and anxiety, anything beyond that is like just not that important to me. And I feel like that's true here in Israel a lot yeah, 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 yeah. more, whereas like in America, there's something inherently materialistic about the frequency there of the energy there. Not everybody there, of course, is materialistic and shallow. I'm not saying that at all. Like mm -hmm. there's tremendous righteousness and goodness and depth and sweetness of American Jewry and Americans in general. I just heard a statistic just today that really renewed a little bit my faith in, in America. And this is something like 80% of Americans are like, Israel needs to wipe Hamas off the map. Interesting. Okay. Needs to wipe Hamas out. And that's like, an, it's good to hear because a lot of the things we see, I think you start getting a skewed and distorted perception that the whole world is with Hamas against Israel. And I think that's true, but not America. I think America still has a real goodness to it that I hope Hashem is able to keep focused on in his mind and, and see, see the goodness there. I just... Amen. Yeah. But uh, yeah. anyways. So you spent years living in Jerusalem? Living in Jerusalem, that's right, yes. And now you are in, I mean, this is, let's call it rural, <laughs> as rural as you can get. You're in the hills of Judea. Right. Um, and not in the hills of Judea like Ephrat is in the hills of Judea. Like you're in, like there's hills around here. That's where you're living. When you come out of you stand here, I would even, I don't know the difference of exactly the dis distinction, but it feels like the mountains. Great. We're like in sure. the mountains. Of sure. Judea. My question, it's called the Sfaramid Bar. It's like literally on the, we're in the last range of mountains, the last like strip of mountains before it, it becomes the Judean desert. Right. What's it like 
living so far away from people. Mm. Well, that's an interesting way to phrase it. Well, first of all, living here for me is it. My final destination. I don't know my final destination, but I'm saying as far as like the, this is where my soul is rooted. My soul is rooted in this land. Also, my name is Ari Yehuda. It's Are Yehuda. Okay. You know, it's like, this is like, but uh, there's just, when I lived, I lived in the old city for a little bit in Jerusalem, and I love Jerusalem with all of my heart. But it's not the frequency that my soul is on. There was always a dissonance there that did not agree with me. It was, yeah. and, and so coming out here, it took a couple of years before everything sort of synchronized. But this is where, where it is. So, um, you know, they sent us out here. They say, you know, the, they sent us out here because they said that these mountains were so critical for the safety and security of southeastern Judea. I could go into the reasons why, but you know, there's Malay Amos over there, there's Iban, right. Nachal, Panei Kedem, and Meitzad, and there was this pretty much 3,000 dunams of land that was exposed and vulnerable to be settled on by uh, European Union-funded Arabs that would threaten all the Jewish villages around it, and, and so they, they wanted someone, they tried to send out Yosmim, like entrepreneurs and yeah. developers, and nobody was like just too a much of a wilderness. And so we came out here and just saw, I felt like it was like, you know, it started off uh, Yossi and Roni, my two partners, they were the first ones out here. They started doing their stuff and then just was not taking. And so right. we were sent out here. We met them and the three and the four of us together were like just crazy enough with the miracles of God to bring this Garden of Eden oasis into life. Uh, but, uh, but for me, like living away from people, it's a little bit like New York City. You could be in New York City and be super duper lonely. It's even easier oh, sure. to be super duper lonely. For sure. Surrounded by all of these, there's people around you, lonely, but are they anonymous. really connected yeah, to yeah, you? Yeah, sure. Out here, I feel more connected than I've ever felt in my life. First yeah. of all, before the war happened, we had constant people coming out here. Tourist buses coming every day. Uh, not every day, maybe every other day. We had a lot of tourists, a lot of like Jews. Most of them were like Jews from Israel, from Judea coming out. This is Judea. This looks like the Golan. What is this? Yeah. In the nearby village of Ibea Nachal. Um, it was founded originally by Breslov Chassidim, but now it's just sort of like, you know, sweet, kind, humble settler Jews that are just so good. And then there's Malayamos, which is much more Haredi, right. a lot of Biala Chassidim, and just sugar on top of sugar, just goodness. <laughs> and it's a community, and I, I, yeah. I have a community. It's, I don't feel isolated at all. Um, okay, yes. I accept, but um, you go uh, you go shopping. You bring the food back, and your wife's like, "Did you get the sugar?" And you're like, "Oh, what do you do? You go back out, or you deal well, without sugar?" Well, <laughs> not really. I mean, Malamos. If you were sitting in Malamos, which is on the other mountain there, yeah, you wouldn't say that because it feels like it's just a village. But here, it feels like that, and it's but it's, still, it's, it's like, a thirteen minute drive. I was going to ask. Okay, to Efrat. 13 oh, minutes. Yeah, when I was in Houston, yeah, yeah. it was about that to go to the nearest Kroger, sure. Randall's. Far away. Everything's you know, far away not, in Houston. Yeah, and also, <laughs> I think it was maybe two years ago that we had our very dear friends, um, Toby and Chaya Cram, were renting the Gimbel's house, and she was just used to ordering food from uh, Supersol. Right. So she ordered food, and they delivered it! Unbelievable. And then Shana's like, what? And that changed our lives. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, so... They delivered it here. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. So what's it like being an Abba? It is so... Uh, 
you know, let me frame, I'm, that, I'm, let me frame that a little bit. You grew up in the States. So, so your upbringing was in the States. Now you're bringing up kids here. What does it mean? Um, that's great. Well, first, I'm just stuck on your initial question, what it's like being an Abba. Because what it's like being an Abba, you know, my father was so overwhelmingly incredible as an Abba. You know, like I would say my mother, everyone would agree, he was a better Abba than he was. Uh, he was a good husband. He was. <laughs> but, you know, like I, I'm made to be an Abba. Okay. And I, uh, very much like my dad, like yeah. my wife is so kind and patient and loving to me. And she sort of coaches me in how I can be an even better husband. She's always encouraging me. I'm a great husband, but, you know, this and that. But just the Abba thing just comes so naturally to me. And every moment is transcendent oh, every moment right. it's constantly constantly overwhelming to the point of tears there was i actually went to a therapist a therapist early on because i was so crippled with love for my children that it was hard for me to function sometimes i was like so so like there's that and that's been part of the trouble and difficulty because when i lived out here alone I didn't have bars on my windows. I didn't have a security system. I didn't have fences or gates. And I never felt a moment of fear. You know, but when I look at my children in the morning and I think about these, the chatufim, the kidnapped and the murdered, and that's, it's just, it's been, that has been all of the, I've never felt fear in Israel up until this war happened. And now I would, I I definitely don't walk around with fear, but I have waves. Yeah. Where fear, and it's all about my family. And the, right. or the first Shabbat after the war, I sent them away. Um, I did not want, things were too unstable and too many questions and Israeli Arabs and what was going to happen. Yeah. I sent them away. And uh, that was, and then I went back to not being afraid on a personal level, right. you know, with, with all that right. was happening. But they're here now all day, every day. And so that's, that's a lot. But to raise them in Judea, to know that, you know, just last night, my daughter had some, my, my parents-in-law gave this electrical guitar to my daughter <laughs> that plays its own music. Okay. She's so, hold, yeah, she so, holds it. So she, what, sorry? She just holds it. She holds it and <laughs> strums it and then it plays, it was playing Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, the, this tune. And I was like, why are we letting that happen? And, and uh, someone, I think it was Shana, she said, she doesn't even know what that That's is. Right. That's right. Well, there's this whole apocryphal story of like a sukkah in Mea Sharim with string lights of, of Santa. Right, it just and, looked and, like a Hasidic Rebbe. Like, yeah, someone's like, who's that? Ah, he's a Rebbe. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so yeah. so there, there's that, and also just to see the indigeneity of it. Right. Like that they just are flourishing here, and walking and on the, crawling in the dirt, and playing in my vineyards, and, and under the, our, our date trees, and it's just, it's a dream. Yeah. That's what it feels like. like you know, uh, a shira malad, a song of a sense, when, when you're turned to Zion, you'll be like dreamers. That's what it feels like. I feel right. like a dreamer. Right, right, right. Beautiful. Okay. We're going to shift, if that's okay. Yeah. I got a series of questions here. Okay. That I've not prepared you with. You ready? That's true, yes. In the Abramowitz home, Kedem or Israeli grape juice? Uh, Mugaz, fizzy. Ah. A fizzy, I think it's fizzy Kedem. Yeah. Every Shabbos you have the fizzy stuff? Yeah, I, I develop, although we have vineyards here and we right. have incredible wine. 
incredible wine. When I was in the army, there were two weeks in Lebanon, I couldn't take off my boots. Yeah. So I got this terrible fungus on my feet. So when I crush the grapes, it ferments the wine in a special way. Yeah, okay. That's a joke. That's not really oh, true. Okay. <laughs> but uh, no, I developed some sort of allergy to alcohol, all alcohol. Right. Terrible headache. So that's it. Fizzy uh, okay. grape juice. Okay. Heinz yeah. or Israeli ketchup? Uh, Israeli. Israeli organic. Oh, okay. Uh, Hasadeh, it's called, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my wife just bought uh, a bottle of, Isra- of, of organic ketchup from the health store, and yeah. I have to say it looks horrible, but it's, it's good. Yeah, it tastes like ketchup. Yeah? Yeah. All right, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, the Israeli food you love the most? Israeli food I love the most? Oh, don't do that to me. This is like it's supposed to be rapid fire, right? Yeah. I don't know. Shawarma's great. Okay. Shawarma, yeah, I guess shawarma. The food that Israelis love, and you're like, how can they possibly like that? Um, Food that Israelis love, how can they? uh, What's that thing? It's sort of like, it's got like egg and eggplant, and it's a mix. Sabich? So like sabich, yeah. Sandwich? Yeah, never spoke to me, sabich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You put too many things in a thing, and they all lose (laughs) their identity, and it's just a... a thing, yeah. Garinim. No, forget Sabich. Okay. Garinim. The, uh, what's it called? Sunflower Gar- seeds? Sunflower seeds. Yeah. Like, it's like you- there's two things that go together that never picked up for me. Sheshbesh, backgammon, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. that you play while you're eating Garinim. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how to properly eat Garinim, and I can't play that game. <laughs> um, the Israeli Hebrew accent. Did you try it? Do you have it? What are your thoughts on it? An American that listens to me speak Hebrew, it sounds like I have an absolutely fluent Hebrew accent in the ears of an American. An Israeli that speaks to me for more than seven minutes will inevitably know that I'm not born here. Yeah. Um, but uh, but for in just little exchanges, Israelis could think seven I'm minutes. actually... Yeah, seven that's minutes. I said that word carefully. That's pretty Meaning good. Meaning that's the most amount of time that will go by yeah. before they realize that. Usually yeah. it may be three minutes, four yeah, minutes, yeah, yeah. and then there's like a gender thing that I slip up or something <laughs> right, like right. that, you know? But, uh, but yeah, but when it comes to davening, prayer, yeah. it's the American accent. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. I cannot pray with uh, the Hebrew accent, okay. but just conversation, yeah, it's yeah. Israeli, yeah. Um, what brings you, you talked about your kids, but I'm asking beyond your own family, what brings you to tears of joy in Israel, about Israel? Tears of joy. Very often during um, prayers on Shabbat morning, when I look at the community and I see these little children with peyot running around, my heart is just, it bursts with love for them. I feel this wave of like, I would happily die for any one of them. And it's, it's, and I often come to tears during Shabbat prayer in the community when I go to the nearby village of Ibn Achal and I pray with them. I'm often brought to tears there just out of my love for them. And that, again, is not a rational thing. I don't know why that happens to me, yeah. but it's a very regular experience. They see and that's that- not my family, meaning my family usually doesn't come because it's a two-kilometer walk. Right, right. So... Do they see you as like the weird guy on the hill or, or are you just like part of the gang? I've been here for seven years now. Definitely yeah. at the beginning, I think I was more the weird guy on the hill. Yeah. But now totally integrated. Awesome. I'm beloved by them and they're beloved to me. And usually you can tell who loves you or the people you love. It's usually a symbiotic thing. 
Right. So, True. yeah, I True. feel very, very much in love with all of the different communities around me. Everybody, I have yet to meet anyone that is not really, really tzaddikim. I have a feeling that has a lot to do with who you are as much as it has to do with who they are. Um, like it has to do yeah, with outlook. That right? could be, that definitely could be. I mean, it would be true if there's, I could say that in general. Like, no, there's people that I still struggle with. You know, there's certain uh, brands of Tel Avivian Jews that it's an avoda. It's a, it's a, I have to work yeah. to love them. But I do. Yeah. You know, Shalom Arshav, even like they tried to destroy our farm. I really love them, but it's, it's, a, it's a work. Yeah. Um, your favorite place to be in Israel other than this place? Favorite place to be in Israel other than here? Uh, Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, for sure. What do you miss most about where you came from? Talking about Texas. Yeah. What do I miss most about Texas? There were great, great people in Texas. The Jewish community that I grew up in was just such wonderful people. Ooh, uh, definitely not the armpit-like humidity and disgustingness <laughs> of the weather there. Right. For sure not. Uh, I think the, uh, the celebration of eating kosher food out. Oh, right. That was a big deal. There's like two kosher restaurants. When I left, there was like four, and then one of them was just destroyed, horribly vandalized in Houston wow. um, by like Hamas supporters or whatever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was always so excited to be eating out there. And now it's like everything is kosher. I've already some taken it for granted a little bit. Right, right. Wow. Um, is Aliyah for everyone? Aliyah is for every Jew. Yes, I do believe that Aliyah is for every Jew. It's not necessarily always easy. Um, it's, uh, it's one of the things that they say you acquire through pain. But I am just consumed. Uh, very often I feel now I'm consumed with, I have waves of being consumed with anxiety about diaspora Jewry. That is what really concerns me. I lose sleep over and at it at night. I, you know, Corona, all of a sudden the gate shut. And there were months that went by that Jews couldn't go. Right. Couldn't move, to, couldn't come to Israel if they wanted to. That's right. And I felt like that was a message from Hashem, an early warning radar, like this is a thing that can happen. Don't take for granted that you'll be able to go whenever you want to. And we're in such a volatile world right now that it's not hard to imagine things developing in certain ways. And then all of a sudden, boom, the moment comes and the gates shut. God forbid some country nukes another which is not science fiction, okay? We're dealing with a lot of nuclear countries that are threatening nukes at each other. That can happen, and then the gates shut. And when you see the societal fabric in America, you know, this week's Torah portion, this coming week, what do we see? Isaac goes to, Yaakov goes to Laban's house. By the way, of course, you've heard this, right? The Parsha always talks about the things that are happening that week. Yeah, of course, sure. So 300,000 Jews go to the White House, Laban's house, Lavan's house, the White House. Bayit Lavan. Bayit Lavan, and they went to the White House. But uh, yeah, Yaakov went there, and he made Lavan very wealthy. And they flourished, but Yaakov also flourished. And then at one point, Lavan looks differently at Yaakov. His eyes, and Yaakov's like, he's looking at me different. Things are changing. I'm being looked at differently here. It's time to leave. That's the time that has come now for American Jewry and diaspora Jewry in general. It's, it's so irrational that even before Israel's retaliation, even before the retaliation, after we're massacred in the most horrific way, there's protests against Israel, people saying, gas the Jews. How is that the response? Yeah. Something is happening on a spiritual level, and it's like, 
every Jew in the world should have, uh, you know, some sort of alarm going off saying, time to go home. Yeah, yeah. Um, your extended family, all in the States, basically? My extended family, uh, well, I have a lot of extended family here and a lot of extended family there. Uh, have, you, have you had conversations with any of them? They know full well. Where I stand. I'm like no, a loud I'm saying, voice. I'm sure you have been a loud voice, but I've also been a loud voice over the years. But yes, I've had extended conversations with many of them. The ones who I feel will take it in the right spirit, there's a chance that they'll listen to me. And if they don't listen to me, they're not going to get mad at me. And I've really come to want uh, peace. And that's why I'm so conflicted because I'm not really standing on the rooftops, blowing the chauffeur, saying, make Aliyah. And a big part of that is I like to be liked. And people don't like that guy. No, they don't. They don't like that guy. And so I'm very conflicted about that. I'm, yeah. You know, I've, I've, over the years, I've done it many times. And I always pay the price for it. But I feel like right now, there's people doing it. And I, I've come to do it much more positively and in an inviting way. I, ultimately, you don't want people running away. You want people running too. So I always talk yeah. about the life, the life here and the vitality and the joy and the mission and the simcha and the fulfillment. I focus on that part and not the, you're, God forbid, going to be in uh, existential danger right. imminently. Yeah, you know, Yishai taught me, we talk so much about Yishai Fleischer, but I guess he's had an impact on both of our lives. He, he talks about, how, like, you know, wherever you are in terms of Israel, take a step. So if you never visit Israel, visit Israel. If you visit Israel on a regular basis, maybe buy a place in Israel. Or maybe yeah, rent, rent a place for two months in the summer. Or, you know, like, uh, steps, one step at a steps. time. So what's so funny take about steps. that is that Yishai Fleischer was one of the people that got me into activism. You know, I remember there was a, a Nefesh Benefesh flight and Yishai put up a bunch of posters, handed them out to people, and they said, Aliyah Revolution. Yeah. He was branding this thing yeah, called Aliyah yeah, yeah. Revolution. Yeah, yeah. And he had a poster up, and people had posters up, and then I saw a link. I'm Christiana Amanpour with CNN International. In Tel Aviv, we have an Aliyah Revolution. I'm like, Yishai was just telling me about trying to get this out, and now it's on CNN. I'm like, wow, we, you can actually do a thing. Yeah. And Yishai was all about Aliyah. Right. And now I feel like he has sort of moderated he's obviously still pro aliyah but he's he meets people where they're at and he's like you drink kosher wine and i'm like i I fight with him about this even now i'm like this is not the time to be doing that this is the time to you gotta you gotta push as much as you can you have to be unreasonable but obviously like many people who have critiques of others i'm critiquing myself right you know yishai is being yishai and he's doing a great job of being yishai i wonder sometimes whether there's a more articulate spokesman for Israel today in the world. I don't think there is. Than Yishai Fleischer. He's yeah. unbelievable. He's unbelievable. I've, uh, there's nobody else who I listen to. He, gives a, he spoke at J Street. Yeah. I've listened to that, that speech maybe 15 times. <laughs> wow. Other than like Rav Kahana Zichonolivracha, where I've listened to many of his things again and again, there's nobody like that. Right, right. Last question. You know how people have uh, magnets on their refrigerator? All sorts of like clever little sayings or whatever. What's your magnet? Um, so there's two. One is the Ari Fold magnet, of course. No, I don't have. mean like what, what actual magnets do you have? I mean, oh. your theoretical magnet that keeps you centered on uh, okay. what life is all about. My, my, my like centralized no, no, mantra. So the Ari Fold magnet. There's the Ari Fold magnet. Okay. Well, the, I, th- I like your question much more. Let me go with that. 
There's two, if I had two magnets on my fridge, one would say, Ein od milvado. Mm. There's nothing but Hashem in the world. Those words, whenever I'm feeling afraid or anxious or whatever, just saying those words, it comes with an entire corpus of meaning and, and commentary for me what that means, but it takes off a minimum of 30% of, in an actual physiological cortisol decreased by 30% just by saying the words, Ein od milvado, and reminding myself of that. And the other one is Gamzula Tova. Mm. Everything is for the best. So between those two, there's nothing but Hashem in the world, Enon Milvado and Gamzula Tova. Those are the two most important mantras that if I say them and remind myself of them, uh, it, it, it puts me in a much better place than wherever I was right before I said it. Awesome. If people want to visit our goat farms, what do they do? Um, they could send me a WhatsApp, they could send me an email very often if send me an email and I will send you my WhatsApp info because I'm not good at answering emails, but WhatsApp I'm much better. So my email is ari at thelandofisrael.com. That's A-R-I strudel at thelandofisrael.com. Okay. Ari Abramowitz, thank you very much for returning again to your story. You should continue to be successful in everything that you're doing to help the Jewish people. Amen. Amen.